started. Welcome back, everybody. Good to have you here. I see actually quite a few faces who have been here with us most of the day, which is great. My name is Cecilia McGargy, and I work in the Lifetime Learning Department. And on behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Office of Engagement, as well as the Alumni Association, we're thrilled to have you here today for this wonderful panel. Elections in America should be, it's a, it's a great year for this conversation. Uh, a couple of quick things. If you can please, uh, on your phones, just silence the ringer so that interruption doesn't happen. Uh, and there are green evaluation forms, really helpful for us if you fill out those evaluation forms just before you leave. Um, helps us, that feedback helps us a lot for the future. Finally, when we get to the Q&A portion of our program, please wait till a microphone comes around to you. It's being podcast, so the question is important to be heard for those. Or for if you want to go back and listen, you want to know what the question was. So thanks for that. Okay, let's get started. I'd like to introduce Michael Gilbert in this panel he's assembled for volunteering their time today. I want to thank them for that. Michael Gilbert joined the faculty at the University of Virginia's Law School in 2009. He teaches courses on legislation, election law, direct democracy, and judicial decision-making. His recent papers examine judicial independence, campaign finance disclosure, and the interpretation of ballot initiatives. Prior to joining the faculty, Gilbert clerked for Judge William A. Fletcher on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco. Professor Gilbert received his Ph.D. from UCAL Berkeley. He received his J.D. from Berkeley Law School, where he served as articles editor of the California Law Review. Please welcome Michael Gilbert, our moderator for this panel on elections in America. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm not accustomed to holding the mic. I feel like a lounge singer. <laughs> okay, that's better? All right, good. So thanks very much for the introduction, and thank everyone, including my co-panelists, for being here today. It's an honor to join you and to have an opportunity to talk about this interesting and surprising, possibly maddening, and monumental 2016 presidential election. I can say one thing about the Trump administration with absolute confidence. It has captured, it has captured our attention. <laughs> from the firing of James Comey at the FBI to efforts to remake health care, from continued allegations of collusion with Russia, the surprises keep on coming. Um, at the end of our panel, during the Q&A, we may have an opportunity to talk about some of these current events. But for the time being, we're going to turn the clock back about six months and focus on the election that got us here. The 2016 race not only yielded a surprising and consequential outcome, it also raised many questions about democracy in America. Some of these questions, of course, are straightforwardly about politics. How did Donald Trump, a political newcomer, emerge from a crowded primary field and win? How did Bernie Sanders, a self-declared socialist with essentially no support from the Democratic establishment, make a run of it? And how did Hillary Clinton lose? Lurking behind these political questions, just out of the sight of many people, sits the law. As I'm always telling my students, democracy in theory may be the province of philosophers and talking heads, but democracy in practice belongs to us lawyers. A network, <laughs> we have a network of laws. Some are federal, some are state, some are constitutional, and some are not. They regulate just about every aspect of the American political process. A little insight into those laws makes elections clearer, though not necessarily satisfying. Today, the panel will talk about a number of election laws and their connection to the 2016 race. 
In an effort to give our discussion a little bit of structure, I'll divide these laws into three categories or questions. Who gets to vote? Who gets to influence voters? And how do the votes get counted? On the subject of who gets to vote, legal questions have long blossomed. Can I vote if I just moved to town or do I have to wait a while to register? Can I vote if I'm homeless and my residence is a park or do I need to live in a home or in an apartment? Can states condition voting on payment of a poll tax? Some of these questions are old and settled. States cannot condition voting on payment of a poll tax. But other questions in this vein are alive and well like this. Can states require voter identification? So as many of you may know, in the last 10 years or so, many states have adopted laws requiring voters to present photo identification before they can cast their ballots. The justification for these laws is to prevent voter fraud. Some people, the argument goes, vote not just once, but twice, or three times or more. Betty shows up at the polls, and first she votes as herself, and afterwards she comes back and votes as Beverly. George Jr. shows up at the polls and votes for himself, and then comes back and votes on behalf of his father, George Sr., who's bedridden. That, by the way, is illegal. For most voters, voter ID requirements are quite easy to satisfy. You just use your driver's license. But for a set of voters, bus riders, handicapped and transient citizens, the elderly, ID laws may impede voting in the same way that poll taxes once did. Now, this tension has created a controversy in law and politics. Do voter ID laws protect elections from fraud? Or do they suppress lawful votes, especially among Democrats? Now, President Trump says the former. As you probably know, he maintains, so far anyway without evidence, that millions of fraudulent votes were cast in 2016, costing him the popular vote. On the other side, consider the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 41,000 fewer ballots were cast in Milwaukee in 2016 than in 2012. The city, rightly or wrongly, claims that the drop in turnout, 41,000 ballots, is due to Wisconsin's new voter ID law. Now remember, Trump won Wisconsin. It contributed to his victory. He won by about 20,000 votes. Now let me turn to a second question. Who gets to influence voters? This question implicates a perennial topic in politics, campaign finance. Who can give money to candidates, money that goes to advertisements and flyers and yard signs, and how much can they give? Law limits contributions to candidates, but it permits unlimited independent expenditures. Now let me try to clarify this distinction for you. Suppose it's October 2016, and you support candidate Trump. You can log on to his website and make a contribution directly to his campaign, but federal law limits that contribution to $2,700. Separate from your contribution, you can, of your own accord, pay for television ads, radio ads, internet ads supporting Trump. Law does not limit that kind of spending. As a consequence, we have, for example, Emily's List on the left, and the Chamber of Commerce on the right, both spending about $30 million in the 2016 presidential election. Other groups, including super PACs and so-called social welfare organizations, spent tens of millions of dollars too. In many cases, they spend the money without disclosing the sources of their funding. Is all of this money good for American democracy? Well, some people say it promotes free speech 
and it provides helpful, to informa helpful information to voters. I mean, if it weren't for all those ads, would you know anything about Bernie Sanders or Gary Johnson? On the other hand, many other people say all of this money is just currency in a corrupt political game. It's just an exchange of political favors. The answer to this question, is it speech and debate, or is it corruption, is certainly important. In 2016, the presidential candidates and their outside supporters raised over $2 billion. Let me turn to the third and final question. How do the votes get counted? Now, American democracy has a very puzzling feature, the Electoral College. To win the presidency, it's not enough to get more votes than your opponent, a fact that surprises many advocates of democracy around the world. You need to get more votes than your opponent in just the right combination of states. The 2016 race marked the second time in 16 years that the winner of the popular vote, in this case Hillary Clinton, lost the presidency. She won by large margins in places like California and New York, but Trump eked out victories in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and other key swing states. So we're left with a question. Is the Electoral College, which we've had since the founding, an anti-democratic relic whose time has come? Or does it remain an important part of our constitutional compromise? Now this question of how votes get counted relates to another important issue, the last one I'll mention, in 2016 and beyond, gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is the drawing of district lines for political advantage. Sometimes, well, gerrymandering always involves politics. Sometimes gerrymandering also involves race and racial discrimination. Sometimes states try to pack minority voters into individual districts in order to weaken their voting power in other districts. Just a week or so ago, the Supreme Court held that North Carolina did exactly this in violation of the U.S. Constitution. Now, gerrymandering does not matter for statewide or nationwide elections. It didn't affect the presidential election, but it certainly matters for local elections like seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and seats in state legislatures. Many people argue that gerrymandering distorts democracy, and the argument is quite intuitive. We're supposed to choose our legislators. Legislators are not supposed to choose their voters. But when the legislators draw the district lines, that's exactly what they're allowed to do. Just to give you a sense of this, in 2016, if you count up all the congressional votes nationwide, Democratic candidates got about 49% of the total vote, but they only control about 45% of the seats in Congress. Now, that may not sound like a big difference, but it's enough to change considerably the politics of that body. And lest you think that Republicans engage in partisan gerrymandering in a way that Democrats don't, rewind to the 1980s, you will find President Reagan making exactly the same argument, but the political tables were turned. Well, I have the easy job today, which is to open lots of questions but not provide you any answers. <laughs> For answers, or at least some perspective, I'll turn to these two panelists. Let me first introduce them both and then give them an opportunity to speak for a while. Immediately to my left is John Harrison. John is the James Madison Distinguished Professor at UVA Law School. John teaches election law, but also constitutional history, federal courts, remedies, corporations, and just about every other class in the law school curriculum. John is a 1977 graduate of the University of Virginia, a former associate at Patton Boggs in Washington, D.C., and a former clerk to Judge Robert Bork on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. John has held many prominent positions in government, including Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. On the end is Nicole Hemmer. 
She's an assistant professor in presidential studies at the Miller Center, where she works with the Presidential Recordings Program. She's a contributing editor to US News and World Report and a syndicated columnist for The Age in Melbourne, Australia. Nicole's writing has appeared in a number of national and international publications, including the New York Times and the Atlantic, and she's the author of the book Messengers of the Right, A History of Conservative Media in the United States. Nicole holds a PhD in American History from Columbia University. John. I confess that if you'd asked me in 1977 what I would be doing, Is this one? Oh. Yes. 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 I'll put it in the stand so that I resist the temptation to do the mic drop, which is, I'm sure at some point will be overwhelming, but I'm going to have to fight that off. As I, as I was saying when you couldn't hear me, as Mike mentioned, I'm the UVA class of 1977, and if you'd asked me in 1977 what I would be doing for our 40th reunion, this would not have been on the list. So you live and, you live and learn. The first topic I want to say something a little bit about is campaign finance, campaign spending, and in particular what are called super PACs, and the way the legal landscape has produced the structure that we now have and the issues that it raises. Super PACs may be said, in effect, to originate just as a legal matter with a case about 12 years ago that you've probably heard of Citizens United against the Federal Election Commission. Although, an important point I want to make is Citizens United is of secondary importance, and Citizens United's focus on corporations, in particular for-profit corporations, is also of secondary importance. Citizens United is rather was the playing out of a distinction, Mike talked about it a couple of minutes ago, that arose at the foundation of modern constitutional law about campaign financing a case in 1976, Buckley against Vallejo, one good thing about this alumni group, as opposed to the one next year, is I can talk about 1976 um, and not be giving a lecture in history. <laughs> Buckley, Buckley against Vallejo about a massive attempt to regulate federal elections uh, Congress adopted in the early 1970s, and, and oddly enough, argued for Senator Buckley by my election law teacher. And so I've been involved in this sort of thing one way or another for a while. And Buckley drew a distinction between contributions and expenditures and said, and whether this was right was debated at the time and has been debated ever since, but there is a rationale for it, and said that contributions to a candidate should be treated quite differently for constitutional purposes than expenditures, political speech. The idea is a contribution might be the equivalent of a bribe. It does involve giving somebody money, even though the money can be used only for a particular purpose. Whereas expenditures, even if they are very large, are speech. Those are people trying to persuade other people about how they should vote. So the court said in Buckley against Vallejo, those are quite different. And the principles about how they can be regulated by the government are quite different. Briefly put, it's a lot easier to regulate contributions than expenditures. And again, the rationale is they're different. An argument is, no, they're not. People may engage in expenditures in order to curry favor with politicians. So they're not different, say some. The court has stuck with the principle that they are different. And then, 
took it very seriously, more seriously than some of the justices would have had them do in Citizens United, talking specifically about corporations. What we now know as super PACs emerged as a result of the court's reasoning in Citizens United and decisions by the Federal Election Commission and the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in a couple of subsequent years, the conclusion of which was, given what the Supreme Court said about how expenditures are to be treated, that they are very strongly protected free speech, it has to be legally possible to create what's now called a super PAC, what in more technical terminology is an independent expenditure-only PAC, political action committee. It means it can take money, and all that organization can do is engage in expenditures, political speech, which now runs into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Such organizations can't make contributions, and following the logic of Citizens United and to some extent Buckley, which as I say remains debatable, the DC Circuit and the FEC said, and because they are engaged only in this highly protected form of activity, speech, they can take unlimited contributions. And that is how what are called super PACs can raise enormous amounts of money, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and I think this is quite important, they can raise tens or hundreds of millions of dollars from wealthy individuals. That is to say, corporations, for-profit corporations, non-profit corporations are not central to the problem of super PACs. They are not central to the problem of independent expenditures. A couple individuals contributed more than $20 million in 2016 to super PACs from their personal funds. Again, wealthy individuals can do that. The question of independent expenditures and whether they're a good idea and how strongly they should be constitutionally protected, I think it's important to see, first, as I said, it's largely about wealthy individuals. Second, it's about two different issues. There are two objections to allowing massive independent expenditures, and I think it's important to see that they are distinct from one another, both for constitutional purposes and for deciding what's sound policy and what is not. One argument, as I said, is an expenditure is a way to curry favor with politicians and therefore can amount to a bribe. A lot of people are concerned about that. Some people say, doesn't matter, it's free speech. Some people say some super PACs actually annoy the politicians they are allegedly supporting because they're pursuing their own agenda. An important thing on this topic, I think, is to see is that that concern, that spending can in effect function like a contribution, which can in effect function like a bribe, is quite different from the argument that wealthy individuals should not be able to influence elections because they have a lot of money to spend on political speech. Some people believe that. Some people think that that is entirely contrary both to the Constitution and to principles of free speech. Again, it's a hotly debated topic. How much should people be able to translate their private wealth into political influence by influencing people through speech? And people who say there shouldn't be limits will stress that second part of the sentence I spoke a moment ago, by influencing voters through political speech. Again, the important point I want to make is that's quite different from the problems of quasi-bribery. That is about what comes with the freedom of speech. And how much does the freedom of speech bring with it the ability to use your private wealth to influence other people? So that's what I have to say about campaign finance, super PACs. I want to say something about districting and gerrymandering, and in particular, partisan gerrymandering. 
which, and gerrymandering apparently is a mispronunciation because, of course, it is named after Elbridge, as he would say, Gary, um, an important Massachusetts politician who was involved in the drawing of a district that looked something like a salamander up there in Massachusetts in the days of the founding, and hence the term, what we call gerrymandering, and no doubt every time his name is mispronounced that way, uh, former Vice President uh, Gary is rolling over in his grave. Anyway, uh, yes, drawing district lines has been used for political purposes for a long time. It is used for political purposes today. The federal constitutional constraints on it are extremely light, if not non-existent, at least under current doctrine. There are periodic attempts to get the court to reconsider this change its doctrine. I'll talk about those in a moment. It's important to see that who controls the districting process, both for Congress and for state legislatures, is up to, absent any action by Congress with respect to federal elections, is up to states and state legislatures. And when I say states, I mean the state constitutional process. Some states recently have changed their constitutions. Arizona did this and provoked a Supreme Court a case about a fascinating question that I'm not going to get into in order to, to move the responsibility over drawing districting lo district lines from the legislature, which is, guess what, a partisan institution, to another institution. Some states have created independent districting commissions. Whether the independent districting commissions will themselves turn out to be partisan institutions is, of course, one of the great questions because politicians kind of like power. And so any institution that can affect how much power they have, they will try to influence. So that's one aspect of the story about what's going on with partisan gerrymandering. I want to say something, since I'm a lawyer and does constitutional law, something about the constitutional law of partisan gerrymandering. And the factual predicate for what I'm going to say is a fact about American politics and American political geography today that is quite distinct from partisan gerrymandering, although it has partisan implications. And the fact is, and this is true both in Congress and in a lot of state legislatures, that the geographical distribution of Republicans is, as it were, more efficient for winning district elections than the geographical distribution of Democrats. Democrats tend to be much more geographically concentrated. And so, to put it briefly, Democrats will win their districts 80 to 20, while Republicans win theirs 60-40. And if you're winning 60-40, you can spread your voters out much more broadly and win more districts 60-40 than 80-20. That's a fact about American political geography. It's not a fact about partisan gerrymandering. As I said, Democrats are more concentrated. One of my favorite examples is they're concentrated in large cities and elsewhere, to some extent, in college towns. Like, for example, Charlottesville. I have voted, this is my precinct. I have voted in this room, which as you see is pretty big, in Republican primaries and been the only voter in the room. <laughs> the officers of election rush out to greet you when you arrive <laughs> because otherwise they have nothing to do. So yes, Republicans and Democrats are not geographically evenly distributed. And that means that if there is districting, there is these days, hasn't always been true, but it's true right now, there is a built-in advantage for Republicans. 
and simulations that try to draw district lines, not for partisan reason, but just, you know, make them ordinary shaped things and not salamander-like things, generally produce Republican majorities in the House of Representatives and in a lot of state legislatures, even if the total Republican vote is less than a majority. So yes, that disproportion is a result of political geography. For constitutional law, that then raises the question, okay, is gerrymandering a constitutional problem? Well, why would it be a constitutional problem? One possible reason is considering partisan outcomes in drawing district lines is unconstitutional because that's an impermissible ground on which to make government decisions. That discriminating on the basis of political party is like discriminating on the basis of race. Some people, I think, believe that. One problem with that as a principle is all sorts of decisions are made on the basis of partisan considerations, not just drawing district lines. For example, 1993, when for the first time in quite a while, Democrats had control of both houses of Congress and the presidency. One of the first things they did was adopt what's called the motor voter statute. Made it easier for people to register to vote, in part because, guess what, politicians like to win elections, in part because Democrats thought that that would, would favor them. What would happen if the courts tried to screen out all of the influence of political partisan considerations on the whole web of law about against voting? There might not be any voting laws left. Another possibility from a constitutional standpoint is forget about intent, forget about why legislators are doing what they're doing. That there is a constitutional problem whenever there is the result, that again is built into American political geography today, that there's a substantial disparity between, for example, the proportion of people who vote for Democrats in an election for Congress or for a state legislature and the number of Democrats elected. That that is unconstitutional and some Supreme Court cases are reasoned along these lines because it abridges the right to vote. It makes people's votes less effective. Well, again, the Supreme Court has thought like that sometimes, thought like that in the, in the classic redistricting cases that, that move to the one voter, one vote standard. But if you think that is the problem, then again, given American political geography right now, that's not a problem just of partisan gerrymandering. That's a, partisan, that's a problem of using districts. Because if you have geographical districts, because of the differential distribution of the two parties, there is, under current circumstances, again, the inherent Republican advantage. So can a constitutional principle really be sound if it means that there's a systematic difficulty with electing people from districts? Well, as you can tell from my tone of voice, there's good reason to doubt that. But on the other hand, that is one of the lines of reasoning that suggests that there is something wrong with partisan gerrymandering. I'm going to say a little bit about the Electoral College, in part because the Electoral College is a particular application of this point about political geography. Republicans are more thinly distributed than Democrats, and so Democrats can, can run up very large majorities in California and New York, and they get California and New York's electoral votes, but they, they're limited. You know, again, they win 80 to 20 in, in, in my exaggerated example. Republicans carry a lot of states, as Mike was saying, by very small margins sometimes, like the way Trump carried several crucial states, by extremely small margins, again, 
fact of political geography about the way the electoral college works. And that is, to some extent, built into having the electoral college. And it's interesting to note that it's not just a result of the fact that 48 of the, 49, 48 of the 50 states and the District of Columbia, which gets three electors due to a, to a constitutional amendment, elect their electors at large. As many of you know, Nebraska and Maine, huge states that make a big difference. Um, Nebraska and Maine actually don't elect all their electors at large. But the Republican advantage, the same Republican advantage that shows up in the House of Representatives would show up if electors were elected by congressional districts. So the geographical nature of the electoral college, the geographical nature of the distribution of Republican and Democratic voters these days probably creates an inherent Republican advantage, maybe not as strong as the fact that it was two Republicans who took advantage of it in the last two elections where this happened might indicate, probably does create a Republican political advantage. The, the legal point I want to make about the Electoral College is there are ways to tinker with it that do not require constitutional, uh, constitutional amendments. A number of states have voted to join a compact, and the Constitution provides for compacts among the states if Congress approves them. A number of states have voted to join a compact pursuant to which their state's electoral votes would go not to whoever gets a majority in that state, but whoever gets the nationwide electoral majority. That is to say, it's possible to synthesize constitutional reform on this, on this issue and move toward direct popular vote by the president. There are some interesting questions about how states would respond if they, if they did that. Several states have signed up for that compact, not enough yet to trigger it, because of course it gets triggered only if enough states to constitute an electoral majority sign up for the compact. Inter interestingly, the states that have signed up for this tend to have democratic legislatures because, once again, there are partisan considerations about this. The other thing that can be done just at the, at the level of one state is states aren't, as I said, states aren't bound by the Constitution to have the unit rule where all their electoral votes go to the same person. And, and this first came up, I guess, in the, 19, in the 1980s, and interestingly, this was something that was Mike was saying President Reagan complained about how Republicans won more votes for the House of Representatives, but the Democrats controlled the House. Now it's the other way around. This was proposed by a Democrat at a time when there were a lot of state legislatures that were controlled in the South mainly that were controlled by Democrats in states that had been voting for the Republican presidential candidate. The proposal was for those states to do what Nebraska and Maine do, divide up their electoral votes proportionately or something like that so that they wouldn't all go for the Republicans. Well, that proposal is going to be on the table every time, and this is something that can happen but doesn't always happen. Every time you've got a state that tends to go one way for the presidency and has a, de has a legislature that's controlled by the, the other party, so of course it's been proposed in Virginia. Um, and it's important to see that changing those rules state by state, as opposed to changing them on a nationwide basis, can have very important, very important differences. The, la the last thing I'll say something about is voter ID. And I'll say something quite brief, because you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a law professor, much of what I have to say, as you can tell, is about the law and about what the Supreme Court says about these issues. And about 12 years ago, when the Supreme Court had a case about voter ID, the court was unable to generate an opinion for the majority. 
And as a consequence, lower court, state courts that have dealt with this have been much more on their own than they often are in, consti in constitutional areas. And I think the reason they were unable to formulate, uh, get six justices, five justices to agree, there were six justices in the majority, they didn't agree, five would have done it, they didn't have five either, um, agree on what a principle should be for assessing rules like voter IDs and, uh, and voter ID and others that have influence on whether people can vote or not is that's a matter of how to make trade-offs. And it's very difficult to formulate a usable constitutional standard about how to make a trade-off other than something helpful like make a good trade-off. When Mike was introducing us, he said, is, is, is voter ID, uh, do voter ID laws protect from fraud or suppress lawful votes? And the answer is yes. They do both, exactly. They are therefore a question of trade-offs between those two consequences, and it's very hard to find a lot of guidance in the Constitution about how to make those trade-offs. There it goes. Just needed a second to warm up. All right, well, I'm going to follow that really excellent discussion of constitutional law and election law by changing focus just a little bit to talk about the politics and the history around those election laws and those election structures that I think have become, have begun to get much more attention in the past 15 years or so, and have become much more pressing, I think, political issues, or at least more of a part of the political conversation. And I'm going to do this in kind of two parts. I want to first talk about the ways that partisanship and polarization have changed the politics around these issues and have made them much more difficult to solve via political institutions. Um, and as, as John was saying, you know, of course, laws surrounding elections are going to have partisan aspects to them. What I want to talk about is how the partisan um, lineup has kind of changed over time and led to an impasse on some of these issues. And then uh, I want to talk a little bit about the way that this polarization on these electoral issues, particularly in campaign finance and uh, voting rights, has driven the growing crisis of confidence in civic institutions and government. So I'll circle back to that at the end. Um, one of the things that makes this increased partisanship more um, difficult for reform is that in part you're going to have to ask people to vote against their own interests. If a particular setup benefits one party and hurts the other, then in order to get reforms that change that system, you're going to need to get somebody to give up something that already benefits them. It's not impossible, though, because there are partisan arguments and there are also moral arguments, and those tend to ebb and flow together, interact in really interesting ways when it comes to electoral law, because there is kind of a fundamental moral attachment in a democracy to the ways that, as, as uh, Mike put all these great questions, who gets to vote, who gets to influence voters, and how the votes are counted. Those are political partisan questions. Those are also political moral questions. And it's interesting the way that those, um, those different arguments intersect. 
So with gerrymandering, I feel like we've gotten a pretty good overview of partisan gerrymandering and how it benefits Republicans today. And it benefits Republicans today in large part because of their success in um, elections in 2000 and especially in 2010. What I find so fascinating about that Republican advantage is that it's led to a situation in which Democrats, in order to advance their own partisan advantage, can make the neutral nonpartisan argument, right? When, when Democrats call for these independent, um, these independent commissions to draw district lines, they're hoping that that will result in more districts that are competitive for them. But they're able to make that argument in the language of neutrality and independence. Not arguing that Democrats should be in control and Democrats should get to draw the districts, but that we need this kind of neutral commission. And what I find so fascinating about John's comments are maybe those neutral commissions wouldn't actually benefit Democrats, but I do believe there's a widespread belief that Democrats would benefit if you had these independent commissions because of the last 20 years of more Republican gerrymandering. When it comes to the Electoral College, we've also seen in the past 17 years um, the way that the Electoral College has benefited Republicans in the two elections in which the electoral vote and the popular vote split, the Republican candidate won the election, and that makes it a partisan issue. There is a partisan advantage, at least in the way elections have played out, for Republicans in the Electoral College. And what makes solutions particularly difficult when it comes to something like the Electoral College, or as I'll talk about in a second, campaign finance reform, is that in order to reform these systems, if, if people agree they need reforms, I mean, they're constitutional issues. And so aside from um, this interesting idea of a compact, what you need is a constitutional amendment. And the way you get constitutional amendments, you don't get constitutional amendments without broad bipartisan support. So constitutional amendments don't solve partisan problems uh, because you need bipartisan support in order to make constitutional amendments happen. When it comes to campaign finance, the reason why now reform flows through the Constitution is precisely because of Citizens United. Citizens United and campaign finance is particularly interesting out of these electoral issues because it's not clear to me that the change in campaign law that happens with Citizens United necessarily benefits Republicans more than it does Democrats. Democrats have pulled in quite a lot of money um, under these super PACs and PACs and unrestrained spending. The difference between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to Citizens United and campaign finance reform is that while campaign finance reform used to be this broadly bipartisan issue, you know, you had John McCain, who was one of the, the big uh, advocates of campaign finance reform, post Citizens United, it's the Democratic base that has been most sort of up in arms about unrestrained spending in politics. And so even though something like Citizens United might actually help Democrats in some situations, Hillary Clinton in 2016 came out for a constitutional amendment to, um, to overcome Citizens United because it was such a central issue for, um, for the Democratic base. And so that's a situation where you might have some, uh, you might not have a distinct partisan disadvantage, but because the base has placed such an emphasis on something like campaign finance, um, that really guides politicians' positions. And then there's the issue of voting rights 
and voting restrictions. Voting restrictions that have been put in place over the last 10 to 15 years, particularly in the last four or five years after the uh, 2013 Shelby decision, have by and large benefited Republicans. Restricting access to the ballot benefits Republicans by limiting access for minorities and for the poor. And you know, some Republican politicians at the state level have been very clear about that as their purpose, that they have a partisan purpose that um, poor people and minorities tend to vote for Democrats, and so their access to the ballot box should be restricted. And part of this, the drive, particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, actually comes out of arguments about demographics, that Republicans have felt the need to expand as much as possible their advantage when it comes to the vote because they believe that demographics are against them, that sooner or later the demographic tide is going to overwhelm them and the Republican vote is going to, it's going to be harder and harder to win national elections. And so the uptick in voter restriction, I think, is related to that fear of uh, a demographic collapse of the Republican vote. What's interesting about this split in voting rights, and I think where voter restriction has become more of a Republican issue, um, the drive to protect access to the ballot box has become a Democratic one. That is not how voting rights legislation has typically been in the United States. The Voting Rights Act, when it was passed in 1965, was passed with bipartisan support, and in fact had a greater percentage of Republicans voting for it um, than Democrats. And of course the VRA, when it was re-upped um, again and again, the, the Voting Rights Act, when it was re-upped again and again by Congress in 2006, it was precisely because Congress had unanimously and bipartisanly uh, re-upped the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court said, you know, this is invalid, you're not actually having debates about these things. Um, that, that is very much a cribbed version of that, and I'm sure John can um, say it more eloquently and more precisely, but that there was bipartisan support for protecting vote access. And I think that in the wake of the Shelby decision in 2013, that is no longer necessarily the case. Now I will say that we talk about partisan arguments versus, versus moral arguments. Republicans have worked to construct a moral argument about restricting access to the ballot, and that has to do with this issue of voter fraud, right? That we need to protect the integrity of the ballot box. The inability to demonstrate massive voter fraud, I think, is the weakness in that argument, um, but it is an argument that has quite a bit of power and gives a moral note to a partisan argument. And so how does all of this partisanship um, lead to lost confidence in institutions? Well, I want to focus on campaign finance and voting rights because I do think that this is one of the central problems we're facing in U.S. politics today. If you look at the approval ratings of the Supreme Court, trust in the Supreme Court, faith in the Supreme Court, the thing that killed bipartisan support of the Supreme Court was not Bush v. Gore in 2000, it was Citizens United. There was a sense that this was a wrong decision, perhaps a partisan decision, but overall this feeling that the Supreme Court had opened the door for elections to be bought. And whether or not that is a precise description of what Citizens United actually allowed, it has created that impression that super PACs and unrestrained donations actually interfere 
with our elections, that they allow the electoral process to be corrupted and voices and votes to be taken away from the people and given to the very wealthy. And whether that's an accurate description or not, there's a loss of faith not only in the electoral process, but in the Supreme Court as well, which was one of the institutions of government that even as the presidency and the Congress became more and more and more unpopular, there was a shared faith in the Supreme Court that was badly damaged by the Citizens United ruling. And then when it comes to voting rights, these competing moral arguments about the sanctity of the ballot box and the need to protect that from voter fraud, um, and this sense that Americans are being disenfranchised by voter ID laws and other restrictions on voting has, I think, genuinely affected people's confidence in the outcome of elections. And you saw this playing out repeatedly during 2016, this idea that um, you have illegal voters who are casting three to five million votes, or that people in Wisconsin had been so disenfranchised that it actually tipped the election to Donald Trump, that the outcome of the election did not reflect the will of the people. And that argument, I would, I would say, is not great for democracy. Um, and that's something that as we have these very vital battles over who gets to vote and how their votes get counted, that these are partisan questions, these are political questions, but they're also moral questions that go right to the foundation of our democracy. Democratic governance requires a shared belief that the government is formed honestly with the consent of the governed. And these fights over voting rights and voter restriction that we're having right now actually does, I think does weaken people's faith um, in the idea of democratically elected governance. And so it is a major challenge and it's one that is very difficult to solve because of the partisan nature um, of these various electoral laws. Okay, thank you John and Nicole for those thoughtful comments. In just a few minutes I'll open it up and we'll take some questions from the audience, but, but to begin I'll exercise the moderator's prerogative and uh, uh, pitch a couple of questions to them myself. Before I do that, I wanna make one remark on gerrymandering, which is a topic that all three of us have addressed. Um, like so many things, it turns out under close inspection to be more complicated than it first appears. So just think about a couple of examples. You have a district that's 80% Republican and 20% Democrat. Now, many people would look at that composition and see a big problem. It looks like a gerrymandered district. Uh, and a district that's closer to 50-50, Republicans and Democrats would be better. Well, why would the second district be better? The usual answer is that it would be politically competitive in a way that the first district is not, and that's important because uh, political competition breeds better accountability and leads to better representation. Okay, that's all true, but now, or certainly seems to be true, but now focus on one more piece in this. What happens after the election in the 50-50 district. Well, either a Republican or a Democrat wins, and half the voters in that district are unhappy. They feel poorly represented. Now, contrast that with the 80-20 district. We know who's gonna win, but after the victory, it's a much smaller percentage of the population there that's unhappy with the outcome. So it turns out there's a, there's a pretty profound trade-off operating here between political competitiveness and representation and we want both of those things, and it turns out we can't really get them both at the same time. The problem runs deep. Well, here's a question for the panel, uh, a pretty open-ended one, <clears throat> excuse me, and it relates to this gerrymandering topic. 
there is a widely shared sense that things are more polarized now than ever, that we can't get along, that the Republicans are further right and the Democrats are further left, and there's no bipartisan compromise on any of the grand issues of the day, like health care, immigration, the environment, and so on. Now, some people uh, uh, justify or explain this polarization by connecting it to gerrymandering. They say, well, you're getting extreme Republicans out of gerrymandered districts on the right and extreme Democrats out of gerrymandered districts on the left. And when you get extreme people in the same room, of course, they have a hard time agreeing with one another. Other people tie the polarization to something that we haven't talked about yet, which has to do with the loss of party control. So uh, in part, perhaps, because of Citizens United and the rise of these outside, well-funded groups, it seems like the political parties have less control than ever over their voters and their candidates. So for example, look at the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, and his uh, great challenges and his predecessor's challenges in getting the fractious Republican Congress or caucus to agree. Uh, look, for example, to the success of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, neither one of whom was the favorite candidate of their parties, but both of whom uh, uh, emerged to run serious and, in one case, victorious campaigns. Uh, uh, so it's an open-ended question, but I just wonder if you'll reflect on it. Are we more polarized than ever before? What's the cause, and what can we do about it? Well, as the historian in the room, I will say, no, we're not more polarized than ever before. We fought a war, after all, in the 1860s when the country had been so, politics had broken down so much that politics was no longer an option, that war is the failure of politics, and that was certainly the case in the United States in the 1860s. And, and partisanship is sort of part of having a party system. As long as we've had a two-party system, partisanship is, is part of that. That said, what we do have is we have, what I see as one of the major political shifts is not um, the loss of party control, is not gerrymandering, because I, I don't think there's any reason why having a, a district that's 80% Republican leads necessarily to voting for the most extreme conservative candidate or vice versa, um, that, that extremism isn't necessarily um, an outcome of that. But I do think that the big historical shift that we've seen in the past 30 to 40 years or so is the ideological sorting of the parties. The reason you had so much bipartisanship in the 1950s and 1960s is because you had liberal Republicans and liberal Democrats who would vote for the same thing, and you had conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans who would vote for the same thing, and then you would get a nice mix whenever you had a party line vote because you would have to corral along party lines people who had very different um, theories of how the government should work. As the parties get realigned, as the Republican Party becomes the conservative party, which happens um, much more quickly and much more totally than the Democratic Party becomes the liberal party, they're still something like 25% of Democrats identify as conservative, whereas only 4% of Republicans identify as liberal. Those numbers might be a little bit out of date, but that, that kind of sorting of the parties is, I think, one of the big drivers of this polarization and the, the decline of bipartisanship. I don't think we need to sort of fetishize bipartisanship as a good thing. I mean, maybe it's a good thing that the parties have sorted ideologically and everybody has their ideological home. Now, that could very well be changing. Um, we have a Republican Party that is now 
splitting in a lot of different ways because of this new rising um, right-wing populism and right-wing nationalism. So this could change, but certainly the big trend over the past generation has been that ideological sort. Couple, a couple of thoughts. First, of course, the last thing Cole said is whenever, if any time something has, is here to stay, it's on the way out. And so the serious fissures that we now see in the Republican coalition may demonstrate that this idea that they're going to be ideologically coherent parties that will not have a lot of space, a, a, lot, of, a lot of overlap, oh, that's so 2010. Um, that, is, that's on, that, that, may be, that may be on the way out. Another observation, yes, it's absolutely true that degree of polarization both between parties and in the electorate rises and falls in American history. There have been high points, there have been low points. No doubt the great thing about the future is it will be different from the, from the past, but will in some vague way resemble it. So yes, these things come and go. And one, one aspect of part of what Nicole was saying ago, a moment ago, for quite a while there was a lot of overlap between the parties because there were a lot of conservative Southern Democrats, like a lot of Democrats, for example, from Virginia. There was what was called the conservative coalition in Congress, starting with the 1938 elections of conservative Democrats and Republicans that together were able to keep anything they, re they, didn't, they really didn't like from happening. Another observation is that par the, the party, party discipline and polarization can work together to accentuate one another. And so when Mike asks, is one reason there, there is so much polarization because there is less party discipline, because people can get elected without having a lot of support from their party, the US political parties are notoriously vastly less di disciplined than the British parties, which are, intense, which are intensely disciplined. Well. If you combine polarization in the electorate and in the parties with strong party discipline, what you can get, of course, is the parties controlled by the majorities of their caucuses, which are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. And so intensely polarized politics, both in the country and in legislatures, and one consequence of, one consequence of that is that if the legislatures operate by majority rule, which maybe the US Congress is right on the edge of changing to, they've already changed this on judicial appointments, and maybe the general legislative filibuster in the Senate will be eliminated. If you have that combination of circumstances, then it is possible that the country will lurch from one extreme to the other as one party wins a small majority nationally or, or, or in a state and then loses it. And you know, again, one of the great things about American history is these, these, these things come and go. I remember in the 1980s, there was a lot of talk about gridlock and what to do about it. And there were proposals for a package of constitutional amendments that would move the American system in the direction of the British system where you've got two competitive parties and whoever wins a plurality nationwide gets complete control of the government. And that's the kind of scenario that could produce the oscillation. And if the parties are, are, re are relatively polarized, oscillation from you know one year they're single payer and the next year Medicaid is abolished. 
um, and then who knows what happens in the third in the third in the third year. So the 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 dynamic of American politics um, isn't necessarily going to lead where you think it's going to lead, and reforms that might be thought to produce more compromise might in fact produce more polarization. Okay, we have about. 20 minutes remaining, so we'll open it up for questions from the audience. And just as a reminder, uh, if you have a question, please wait for the microphone to get to you so we can capture the question on the recording. All the way in the, yeah, right here. You mentioned about the commission concept that some of the states are looking at. What's the big difference between a commission and what we have now is a three-judge district court to decide whether there's been a uh, unconstitutional uh, uh, setup uh, with respect to state legislatures? Two, two, diff two differences, the, co the, com the commissions like the one in Arizona just do districting. And so they, a, a three-judge a three district court has only a limited amount of power actually to decide what the, district, what the districting structure is going to be. It has what amounts to a veto based on the applicable legal rules. But the independent commissions are much more powerful than that, and their composition generally is not life tenure judges, and so people who may be more politically responsive. So there, there, are, there are similarities, but they're by no means identical. Yeah, hello. Uh, my question has to do with, uh, I've understood that the numbers of liberals and conservatives are approximately equal, and often our uh, elections are decided by moderates. Could you speak to that? Those numbers do change a fair amount over time, but I think that's roughly correct that um, your numbers of conservatives and liberals. I don't know if moderate is always the best descriptor for that middle group. Um, I think we have right now a bit of a poverty in our political language in how we describe people's political beliefs. I mean, over the past 20 or 30 years, conservative, liberal, moderate have has kind of made sense. I think we're moving, as, as John put it, we're kind of moving out of that um, that layout. So do, it, it doesn't seem from our election results that moderates decide, but I think that part of that might be due to maybe in general elections, um, moderates have a bigger percentage of the vote, but the candidates are chosen in the primaries where activists are the ones most likely picking the candidate. The, the one thing I would, I would quick, two things I would quickly add. One, I think that, yeah, the, the poll response that tells you the least about somebody is if that person says, I'm a moderate. You really, you really learn relatively little from that. And one thing that is, that is sort of the polit a political trend that's, that's been going on, I don't know, a couple decades now, you probably know, declining in ticket splitting. And people are becoming a lot more straight part, they, they vote the straight party line a lot more often than they did 30 years ago. And I think that, that fact also tells us, I don't know what moderate means because you might think that the thing a moderate would do would be decide, well, with this Republican and this Democrat, people do that less often. And so, yeah, what are moderates? Good question. People like to describe themselves as politically independent, even if they don't actually act as political independents. I think it's one of the big takeaways. Um, I was going to ask a question about the Jerry or gerrymandering. Um, in the past, my sense was that, that politicians could sort of decide with relatively broad strokes how people were going to vote. But now in the era of Google and 
all this you know, massive data that's collected, they can predict down to the individual how you're going to vote. In other words, they've got hyper-accurate data and, and can draw districts you know, household by household. Do you think that this has changed the equation about gerrymandering and, and made it more entrenched? The technology is better. There's no, there's no, there's no, quest, there's no question about that. It is, it is, and, and one, one reason you can say things like what I said about if you do simulations where you use sort of standard principles of compactness and so forth to draw district lines, you still get a, a pro-Republican effect is because the software is so good. And it's possible to do Monte Carlo type simulations where you do that a thousand times and find, and find out what the, what the average looks like. So yes, election, election technology is more, is more powerful. And so, and so, yeah, the gerrymander did look like a salamander. Now it's even easier to do, to do that, yes. And you know, you, it's, it's, in, it's interesting to, to, to try to figure out to what extent are changes over time, are, part, are, are, are American politicians becoming more ruthless or just the tools available to them getting better? And I would just add to that, I mean, the other effect of this, these, this powerful new computing that goes into this is that you can also sort of see if there are discriminatory effects of the way that those districts are drawn. And so that can be a powerful tool, tool as well if you can look at those maps and say, look, our computer program tells us that this is racially discriminatory. You have to go back to the drawing board. Um, so that can be a powerful other side to that new technology. I'm having a hard time understanding, regardless whether you're a Democrat or Republican, why the issue of having identification is so troubling. I mean, in this day of, in this age of technology, you, you might not have a car, but you, if you need to buy cigarettes, you need identification. If you want to buy alcohol, go to a bar, you need identification. You have to go on a plane, you need identification. I just don't understand why that draws a line. So I would say that in theory, that's a fair argument, but actually the ability for people to get those documents isn't as easy as it sounds. And Ari Berman of The Nation has been writing about this quite a lot and tracking people who are paying lots of money in order to try to get the underlying documents, which for some people don't even exist because of when and where they were born. And they're less likely to exist um, if you're African-American and were born in the South. And so. That's part of it, and so it operates as a poll tax if you have to pay $25 to get a copy of your birth certificate or what have you. Now, if there were a national ID program where everyone freely got photo ID, great. That's not the system that we have now. Right now, the system that we have in requiring ID, especially strict ID, disenfranchises people because they cannot afford or obtain the documents that they need in order to get that ID. So the question was, why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't this be part of our entitlement system to have people be able to get this? Great question. <laughs> I mean, just as I would recommend having um, automatic voter registration, I would argue for automatic IDs for everyone. Um, there are some philosophical, political reasons why people oppose um, having a national ID system. And again, there are partisan reasons why people want to make it harder to vote. If I can just briefly chip in on this too. If the claim is that voter identification laws 
systematically disenfranchise lots of people, I, I don't think very many people hold that view. The argument instead is that voter identification laws may disenfranchise a small select slice of the population, people who are otherwise disadvantaged. They can't afford a car, they don't have a license, they don't have a birth certificate or any of these documents they need. Now one other important distinction to note, um, unlike driving a car or flying on an airplane, um, uh, the right to vote is constitutional. You have a constitutional right to vote. And so many people, they want to draw the analogy, they say, well, come on, you, you need a license to drive, why shouldn't you have a license to vote? Well, you don't have a right to drive. <laughs> but you do have a right to vote, and we're quite skeptical of uh, restrictions thereon. The other side of this equation, I'll keep it brief, is um, ordinarily, we, we don't want our governments to uh, uh, implement regulations unless we think there's some purpose to be furthered by them. And this is, now this is open to debate. We don't have much data on this. But there are certainly good theoretical reasons to think that the kind of voter fraud that voter ID laws target is just not very widespread. So just, just think about how this would work. I want to cast an extra vote for my candidate. So the way I'm going to do that is by showing up at the polls twice and one of those times voting as someone I'm not. Well, that's pretty risky. You might know the poll workers. You might have already been at that polling station today. Other people, friends, neighbors, they may recognize you, and the penalties are pretty stiff. Best case scenario, you get away with it, and how many votes have you gotten for your candidate? One. <laughs> so do people vote fraudulently in person? Maybe, but the evidence of this is extremely slim, and there's a good theory for explaining why that is. If you want to steal an election, reprogram the machine. Don't fraudulently vote in person. So a lot of the pushback is about the state's rationale. What's, if there's no problem here, why are you spending a lot of state resources to solve it? Uh, Mike, can I, 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 I want to I take this opportunity to throw in a topic that we talked about, talking about and, and haven't so far. And the, the scuttlebutt I've heard, and this is just scuttlebutt, is that if you want to steal an election and, and you don't have a 14-year-old who can reprogram <laughs> the machines, the way, the way to do it is with absentee ballot fraud. That that's, a that, that's a that that's a serious issue. The point, the point I want to make is absentee ballot fraud, abs absent absentee voting is sort of technologically a lot, it's, it's basically the same thing as early voting. And so it creates a vulnerability, not at the polls, but a serious vulnerability, a serious opportunity for fraud and the topic I just want to make sure not to, not to miss entirely is the question of early voting, which has taken off dramatically in the last, quite recently, in the last 10 or 15 years. And one consequence of which is people can vote before they know that one of the candidates is going to have a fist fight with a reporter. And maybe, maybe there is something to be said for having people vote all basically at the same time and with the same body of information available, available to them. And the last, the last thing I can't resist throwing in, one of, my one of my favorite examples about why you would want to go to law school, a case involving the Louisiana system that they used to have for when to conduct their elections, which the Supreme Court ultimately held, was inconsistent with the federal requirement that elections be held on, shockingly enough, election day, which is you know, the problem with early voting. There isn't just one election day. Um, that case was won by a, f a friend of mine who was representing his mother. So what, what better reason to go to law school 
than to end up arguing a case in the Supreme Court of the United States on behalf of your mom. The only thing better would be getting her acquitted. Uh, yeah, just a question for the panel. Uh, you, you talked about a number of factors affect. Uh, you talked about a number of factors affecting the election. Um, if you had to pick one of all those factors, a dominant factor, what would it be? So the question is, um, if you had to pick one factor that influences the outcome of elections, given all of the many that we talked about right here, what would it be? I mean, honestly, I think it's access to the ballot box and the ease of access to the ballot box, and not just things like voter ID, but closing down polling stations. Um, have, I mean, one of the reasons why early voting has become so popular is because waiting in line on election day for eight hours isn't something a lot of people can do. Um, and so I think that if voter registration and voting were made easier um, and instead of harder, that we would have very different election outcomes. Now, maybe we don't want those different election outcomes, but I think that that is one of the biggest things, at least shaping elections today. I would say it's the choice between geographic districting and proportional representation. I have a question. You talked about the lessening of control of the political parties over the um, choice of candidates that we could vote for. Could you um, assess the changing role of the media as media outlets have exploded over time and have become more polarized themselves? Since I wrote a book on that, I should probably address at least part of it. Um, I think one of the major roles of the lessening of the party is that of the control of the party is that you no longer have dark horse candidates like um, uh, uh, who, who became president in 1920? Uh, Harding, right? Who nobody has ever heard of just becoming president. Now it really is a much more personality-driven campaign, and that has a relationship to media because your ability to effectively, persuasively, and charismatically use media outlets is an important part of being able to sell yourself as somebody who people would vote for. Um, as far as partisan media... In many ways, voters, at least activists, are operating with entirely different narratives and even information and, and facts because of these polarized outlets. Now, this is not new in American history. In the 19th century, you had party papers. There was no expectation that the media would be unbiased. If you had a Whig paper, it was going to have Whig ideas in it. Um, so I, I do think that we are almost, in a way, reverting back to that... 19th century media landscape and away from the three networks, you know, major papers of record um, media landscape that we had before. And of course that's going to change our politics and change the kinds of candidates who win um, because if you're operating out of entirely different information sources, um, your view of the political problems, the political solutions, and who can solve those problems is going to be vastly different. I think, I think that phenomenon is a little bit like what I said about gerrymandering a couple of minutes ago. The fact that the new media outlets have been so successful suggests that the demand has been there all along, or at least for a long time, and it's when the technology became available and it could be done more cheaply that it was possible to meet that demand. Yes. Um, another question on political redistricting, which 
perhaps could be called Virginimandering because it happened in this fifth district uh, in 1788, 24 years before Governor Gary did his thing. Uh, Patrick Henry redrew Monroe so he could challenge Madison, and Madison withstood the onslaught. Anyway, would the panel put forth a uh, winning formula for an, quote, independent commission because so often you hear, oh, there's no such thing as a nonpartisan or an independent commission because it's people and it's politics, blah, blah, blah. But we have a lot of things like solicitor generals, a, a lot of folks that function is to be nonpartisan. So what state's experience in these commissions would you put forth to say, here's a model that could have some traction and that some, some incumbent could drop the cudgel and get us in this century in this aspect? Un unfortunately, I don't, yeah, I don't know. And this is, one of, this is one of those things where you need to know a lot to be able to answer that question. And I, and I, don't, I don't know enough about the experience of the commissions, how, 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 how they have actually worked and what they have actually done. I would, I, yeah, I don't even know that. Well, I'll just make one comment on this. Iowa has an independent redistricting commission. And one of the things they've tried to do in Iowa, and it's a kind of structural uh, uh, design feature of the process there, it's meant to sap partisanship out of the process, is this. The members of the commission, when they draw district lines, they're forbidden from having information about the uh, political affiliations of voters. So they know how many people live where, but they don't know for whom they vote. They don't even know the uh, uh, residents, the addresses of incumbents. And this has had a very interesting feature. On occasion, the Iowa Commission has redrawn lines, and they've drawn the incumbent out of their district. <laughs> Yeah, you can do this intentionally, too. All right, this is part of the partisan, the partisan game. But sometimes it happens accidentally, uh, and it goes back to what John said. This problem is really hard. Um, there are trade-offs all over the place. But Iowa's on a grid system to start with, which helps. They're basically square. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry, we've got a, and sorry for the couple guys I did not get to. I apologize. We're out of time. Um, please help me thank John and Michael and Nicole for being here today. Really informative. On behalf of Lifetime Learning,